If I always used to say skills are taught, values are inherited. So for me, it was about trying to get to the basic motivation and drive of individuals. And if they lack skill, I always felt that you could train people. Pretty hard to change somebody's values. So if somebody wanted to work as an individual and be very entrepreneurial and isolated, then we probably weren't the right place. Versus somebody that wanted to be part of a team, was you know, willing to learn and grow, then if they had a skills gap, then that wouldn't necessarily put me off hiring somebody. Hello everyone and welcome to the Pep Talks podcast. For this episode, Sam and I are joined by Neil Rodford, former CEO of YMU, a market leading talent agency which Neil led through three successful buyouts, delivering a 500% increase in enterprise value and a turnover of in excess of 140 million pounds. During this time in the business, Neil executed over 40 acquisitions. We discuss how he identified the right targets, dealing with founders and how to successfully manage integrations. We also discuss team development and how the relationship with PE changes through the investment cycle. We hope you enjoy. So we're here for our next episode of our podcast, Map of the Maze. Uh, we're here joined today by Neil Rodford. Hello, Neil. Hi. So Neil um, spent 20 years building a business called YMU. Uh, which is a talent consultancy, uh, talent agency. So uh, I think Jerry Maguire. I mean, Good you look description. A bit, you look a bit like Jerry Maguire. I, I think I'll take that. I think he's a bit more <laughs> handsome and ripped than I am, but I'll take it. <laughs> so uh, an amazing journey. Took it from a couple of million in revenue to well north of 140, 150 million in revenue over 20 years. And we're going to talk about all of those experiences. So um, really looking forward to that. But we um, were joined by a third voice today for the first time. My big reveal is that our super producer, Richard Aleaf, is joining us Hi, and uh, is going to be asking some questions of Neil. So um, I'm really pleased to have you on board, Richard. Yeah, me too. Thank you for the intro, Sam. Yeah, delighted to be taking a more hands-on role in the podcast after 45 episodes of <laughs> being behind the scenes. I've been holding you back. Yeah, basically. Holding yeah. the talent back for this long. <laughs> yeah, so I'll be helping you out with a, with a few extra questions. So yeah. I, I'm actually going to give you the floor, Richard. I'm gonna, yes, please. You know, yeah. Neil and I have spoken to each other before, so we know lots of stuff about each other, but we're going to pass it to you for the first question. Let's go. Hi, Neil. Good to see you. Hi, Richard. Uh, so Sam briefly went into your role under private equity there, but I thought we'd maybe start off by going a bit further back in your career. It was quite an interesting journey for you right at the beginning obviously talking about Smiths then into the MD role at, at Fulham mm. so I just wondering if you could tell us how that how that came to be. So WH Smith really were it was on the distribution side not the retail side which most people know they um, one of the sort of senior managers at WH Smith a guy called Brendan Fitzmorris took a shine to me and gave me an opportunity I left school with no real qualifications driving a van delivering newspapers but mm -hmm. um, took a shine to me and put me through WHS had a training centre in uh, Didcot near Oxfordshire and so I did a lot of training with them they were really active in it it was a kind of residential base and I did all sorts of things diploma in marketing time management you name it they had a course um, so I moved quickly through that organisation and ended up in Holborn in their head office um, in the mid 90s and was very happy there progressing quickly through sort of defined as a senior manager in, in that organization and got a call out of the blue to say Mohammed Al-Fayed was going to set up a media company right. <laughs> and would I come and be the circulation director in that business and me with a collection of other individuals sort of joined with an idea of forming 
radio, print, um, magazines, etc. So yeah, that's that's how I I got across to working from him, and that was a, a spectacular failure. <laughs> we had a radio station that was on AM and didn't have a great reach. Mm-hmm. Uh, we relaunched Punch Magazine famously with Amex and. That didn't connect. Um, so I was a bit lost and thinking I've made a really stupid decision, mid to late 20s. And then out of the blue, he bought Fulham Football Club. Yeah. And he had seen something in me, I suppose, similar to the original individual at Smith's and, and put me in charge of it after he'd owned it for a couple of months. So, yeah. Wow. So sort of championed through that process from leaving school through Smith's and then into the Fulham role. Mm. That must have been quite a lot of pressure. Going into MD of a, of a huge football club. Yeah, I mean, where, I loved, what, where were they then at that point? They were League Two, just being promoted out of League Two, um, so the bottom division, really. Uh, it was incredible. Uh, I'm a big sports fan, but particularly football fan, and had played a lot of football. So for me, like, be careful what you wish for. I always yeah. remember Kevin Keegan reminding me that I didn't play. So sure. actually, um, the idea of running the club was to try and stay in the middle and not get too high when we won or too low when we lost. Um, but yeah, the thought of sort of which I did buying and selling players, and every day going to Craven Cottage and being around yeah. the ground. Um, yeah, there were lots of good things about my naivety at that point. But one of the realities of dealing with that sort of you have a FTSE 100 exposure with the size of a very small business. Sure. So that is an interesting sort of mix, um, which helped me probably as my career has gone on into talent. But so yeah, there's a lot of pr- pressure, real and perceived. Mm a lot of public uh, perception and super fans and all the things that you can expect to, yeah. to have when you run a football club. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I loved it. It was probably like some of the best moments of my life when you think back on events are being Man City at home 3-0 on a yeah. Friday night on Sky. <laughs> I remember sort of walking off and high-fiving with Kevin and sort of pinching myself, realising wow. that, yeah, that's, that's a pretty special moment that I'll always remember. Yeah, it must be interesting as a football fan as well, I guess every football fan in the country when they see a club that isn't doing that well probably thinks oh, I could do a better job than that but then you've actually gone and given it a go yeah yeah no we were successful so that helped yeah Mohammed was a good owner and good chairman of that football club um it's tough those jobs because in reality it's all about what happens on the pitch to a degree yeah um but yeah, yeah I'm sure some people could do a better job to be honest <laughs> but, uh, but yeah it was enjoyable did you get to was it did it get to the premiership when you were there uh, championship so I left when John Tagana came in and took them up but we were yeah we'd gone two leagues up when I left and we bought the training ground and the stadium had started to be up so lots of experience I worked for sort of Harrods group mm-hmm. for about five or six years so it, I enjoyed it it was a real opportunity and without that I mean it's like all these things right I think I've said in other forums I being lucky that people have given me a chance well before I was probably had any credentials to be able to do it that's a bit mm-hmm. of a theme so you grew into it yeah I didn't have any did you meet Michael Jackson? I did. I sat with Michael Jackson in the director's box and walked across the pitch with him into the changing room. So I did. Yeah, the statue came after me. I mean, was that as surreal and Very surreal. As, it, as it seemed? Very surreal. He, um, he walked around the ground and it was one of those days where it's rainy and sunny. So he had the, uh, the umbrella up for both the sun and the rain, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> and after about the game had started for about 15, 20 minutes, he got bored and went down into the... Uh, into what was called the chairman's lounge and um, didn't watch the game and I went down and sat with him like, as close as we are which again is a very surreal moment mm. um, he didn't say very much to be honest he did once he went in the changing room with the players he became a, a lot more vocal and and animated but yeah incredible like it was uh, surreal to think and I've I know him. you had lots of other experiences a bit like that didn't you with meeting some incredible people yeah although I suppose he's probably you know often people say he's probably the 
most well-known, if that's the right well, analogy. I, I, I'm going to play your own trump card here. The last time we talked about this, you were talking about Princess Diana. I did. And, well, that's again through you know, that sad period, as it turned out. I passed her a couple of times uh, going in and out of what we called the chairman's office. And she was tall and beautiful. I always remember that. Never really had a conversation like I did with right. Michael Jackson. But, um, yeah, I did pass her. I remember being how strikingly beautiful she was. Yeah. Sort of I lived in Fulham from the from about 96, 97 to 2001, which would have been at your era, I suppose. That's exactly the time I was just down the road, actually, Mm. um, just off New King's Road, near Fulham Pottery. And the whole vibe was just so exciting. It was just like this, because, you know, the club had been nowhere. It had been in the doldrums. And it was just promotion after promotion and win after win. And Keegan really got the club energised, didn't he? He really bought sort of enthusiasm and positivity to the place he's special Kevin you know and obviously he's well he's you know well known I, I, for talking about how hard he worked he used to leave the northeast very early in the morning stay there all work work incredibly long hours um, made you believe I listened to some of his team talks felt fortunate enough to hear him sort of in the changing rooms and he did really make you believe or that you you know you could you could be more or do more he was incredibly charismatic mm. um and was very clever of you know the chairman at the time to bring kevin in because he really was the pied piper and took a lot of you know the criticism that would have been leveled or the cynicism and and yeah it was incredible on every level very very special individual we used to race across like he was so committed we'd play squash or race across high park and he was so mentally strong you could see why throughout his career he uh, he'd been so successful on every single level so yeah very special individual and without him i don't well they were a good combination weren't they they were an odd combination yeah. mohammed and kevin but it was very successful how did you go from that to into ymu then tell us about the sort of origins of ymu and how you got involved yeah so i left i left there with a view to Kevin and I actually and he left to go to be England manager and I did that deal so that was the first sort of agent role I'd ever done well I bought players at Fulham but that I negotiated that deal Uh, and then Kevin and I worked together he had an idea for a football theme park as a concept so him and I sort of uh, worked together and that I'd gone from sort of having a team of people working with people to being sort of him and I and he was often off obviously doing the England job so there was a football agency based in the northwest of England that I'd known, which had some former players in it. Um, Jesper Olsen, Kevin Moran, quite a well-known agent, Paul Strefford, Wayne Rooney's agent, mm-hmm. uh, and a guy called Soren Lerby who'd also played for Denmark and stuff. And they had a very successful agency and wanted to float it on AIM. Mm-hmm. And I was brought in to, uh, to corporatise it, if that's the right term. Again, somebody felt that I could add to it because they were either active agents or formal professionals. So I went in and we floated it on AIM in about May 2001, something like that. So that was the journey of, you know, 20 years later, that's the starting point of what is today, you know, the mm-hmm. UK's largest talent agency. Yeah. So tell us, tell us about the sort of those early steps from taking it from a uh, football agency, talent management agency into something that was a worldwide um, uh, multi-talent you know you, you 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 span across the sort of talent pools now of sports yeah culture media the lot don't you so so the i we floated it and that was at the time the turn of the century when the dot com everybody thought they could monetize their their rights so every player would have its own website effectively and that was 
pretty clearly after several months really that wasn't going to be a potential growth opportunity so then you start to look at and I think I've, again I've said this before but you look to the US they had these really large talent agencies huge businesses with thousands of employees in them and, and different talent and talents from different verticals like music television film mm -hmm. uh, writers etc and there wasn't really one in the UK so the basic principle was to buy and build logically other verticals because actually entering any of those verticals let's say you want to be into music representation is pretty hard to do from a standing start so in order to buy that goodwill that customer base the idea would be to buy into through acquisition other ma managers or agents and then over the top of it, put a range of services that you could uh, deploy to that wider client pool. So things like legal, financial, commercial exploitation, brand endorsement, concierge services, pretty much I mean, like a family office, I suppose, for talent. Yeah. Um, and because it had been done in America, it wasn't like I was coming up with a new concept. It was just saying we're going to build the UK's largest one. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's the idea of it. And... So we maintain the sports presence and then build out the other verticals over a long period of time. What, what, so what stage did you do the first private equity deal? You did three deals. Um, so the first one, so from 2001 till nine, we were on AIM and not really going anywhere. And um, we'd done a couple of acquisitions or two or three. Uh, and then I did the first, the MBO took place in 2009 with Gresham. Mm -hmm. And um, was that really to sort of, uh, supercharged this value creation plan you had and how far had you got with that plan you've just described by 2009 or was it really the Gresham investment that we'd made some progress I suppose we'd proved the idea again another individual who now runs his own fund a guy called Andy Marsh was one of the partners in Gresham in Manchester I'd got to know through DLA they were my corporate legal house James Kerrigan there one of the partners introduced me to Andy and we were we were lived in the same vicinity so we just hung out a little bit and I hadn't even been known really Andy was probably checking us out at that stage mm. um, so we'd done some enough to prove I suppose that the model could potentially work and the market capitalization of the business was 25 million ish on aim at that stage so it wasn't you know it's kind of at the bottom end of the P um, yeah house i suppose um so yeah and it, the idea from that point to buy it back was to you know develop the plan much faster than we've been able to do on aim because we, we never raised any additional capital from one to nine basically all of the mm -hmm. any acquisitions that we've done we've done for our own cash flow it wasn't like we were you know using our shares to increase the capitalization of the business yeah is it i mean you've you've, you've described a sort of 20 year period You've gone back to the beginning but at the at the beginning were you thinking long term or were you thinking i'm going to do a deal with gresham i've got three to five years to double triple the value of the business this is how we're going to do it in that period of time and i worry about what happens next once i get there or were you thinking actually i've got this vision for this this you know uk equivalent of what's there in the us because ultimately what you did next was go and buy in internationally yeah. in the US. Isn't it? I, I mean, PE talks in cycles. It's one of the questions I often ask PE houses, like, you know, what's the exit plan? And some would say they had very detailed ideas and others not that were slightly vague. So the time horizon, you know, one can see from other funds or examples are typically sort of three to 10 years, something like that. Um, but I'm not saying I particularly felt thought in cycles. I think as it went on, because you were asking senior management to take equity to subsidise salary or bonus, 
creating a crystallization event becomes important. Yeah, you're often asking people to take less money than they would if they were being employed outside of a PE-owned house. So crystallization does become important for your own financial independence. Mm. Um, but I'm not sure I ever felt in those windows. I was probably keener to do deals than I think some other people would be in my position. As I say, I always felt that sort of crystallization of event was important for potentially me and the team, take some value off the table, whatever you want to describe it. But yeah, I don't think I ever really felt in lines. I mean, if acquisitions, I think to judge a real acquisition potentially in a in a people business, you probably need three to seven years to work out whether it was a good or a bad deal anyway. Yeah. Did you have to keep the sort of key people in in those acquisitions? Obviously, I assume the business is heavily relationship based. Mm. So were the sort of senior leaders in those teams kept in to maintain those relationships with the new clients? Yeah, I mean, it's all for anybody that's done an SPA, and I've done a lot, then you can have reasonable periods of lock-ins or post-termination. So some sort of an earn-out as a logical lock-in, and then you might have some sort of post-earn-out restrictions. But generally, I suppose why most acquisitions don't succeed is that you do lose some goodwill when you're trying to align cultures and people, and that's really hard in a people business. Um, I think I was reasonably successful doing that, but I also got a lot wrong sure. um, from doing as many as I did. But yeah, I mean, that's the, the, the alignment. I think the issue is with acquisitions in people business is how people talk about this, but by the group being enlarged, are you, in the eyes of the customers, enhancing their service? Mm-hmm. And that can sometimes be difficult in a agent to principal relationship because they probably buy into that intimacy and that one-on-one chemistry and don't want this faceless corporate entity but below it all I always felt that once you got to a certain scale it would attract because that was proven in the US Mm -hmm. scale did attract more clients and that became true with us the bigger we got the more desirable we came for certainly aspiring talent from all verticals to join us Um, but yeah it's hard right how do you keep especially the best people always leave in my experience as well the revenue generates so it's a difficult balance which is why equity was important and crystallization was important because that you know that they're obviously capital sums that you wouldn't necessarily get from income or bonuses yeah and if you lost the individual would you lose the talent a lot of the time yeah not always but yeah a lot of the time so how many acquisitions did you do so in and out, because we sold some businesses as well, I think we did about 40 when I added it up over from 2001 till 20. And, I, and as I say, when I hear this, I got a lot wrong as well. Yeah. Um, so it's not like they were all successful. I could, if I, like, you know, if one was to do them again, I don't know whether I, I'd like to think I was in the low 20s of getting right what we said on a bit of paper we thought would happen. Mm-hmm. But I also think you need a period of time. Like I said to you, I think to really judge acquisitions, um, I was reading about Just Eat today and, you know, they went to be market leader and, you know, their goodwill write-off. So there's a value of being a market leader and then they've amortised or had a big sort of write-off of the goodwill. So I think you need a long horizon of that, maybe three, seven, even ten years to say, was did that work? Mm-hmm. And certainly, you know, if you're buying anything of substance, you're paying multiples in excess of three, five, seven anyway. So you've, you've got to look over that horizon. So some things that started really well didn't end up well. And conversely, some things that didn't start as well did end up being good. So I don't. I, I think you have to judge it over a longer period of time. But without doing those acquisitions, you would never have reached the group structure you oh, no, you outlined earlier. You, yeah. But you created that group structure, and it's there, and it's it's yeah. working, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. What? How did you set yourself up to make uh, acquisitions work? And let's just think about that from 
an M&A perspective that's doing the deals, finding the assets, doing the deals, mm. and then a bit more on, on integrating the deals. So, so do it, doing the deals, did you do? Did you have a team of people? Or in the end, not at the way? beginning. I remember sort of in the early days, mm -hmm. guys to sort of pride myself with reading, and I still don't think I understand fully all the SPAs that I've ever signed. But yeah, I would literally turn the pages with the corporate lawyers and try and understand everything. By the end, um, uh, my finance director basically that was originally there just became full-time on mergers and acquisitions and he was so much better than I was and so I would be less involved mm -hmm. and actually probably over time realized that by having a bit of distance you got less wedded to the transaction or less you sometimes you can be too close to it so in the end yeah we ended up with a full-time sort of M&A lead um, person which made it a lot easier but at the start you don't have those resources and, and I'm glad I went through it um, because you learn a lot mm. you, you would know. source the uh the targets and opportunities. Yeah, all the team would. I think, you know, most injuries are relatively small, aren't they? So in that sense, you know who your competitors are and I would make it my, one of my key tasks was to go out there and try and meet those people. And often it would be introduced and you try and do that in a soft way because sometimes the businesses might even be bigger than you or perceived to be more credible than you. So uh, I'd have a lot of conversations with people on coffee and try and introduce myself. Um, and that, you know, those things could, take years to come to fruition as well conversations we had but that was a big part of what I was doing because we needed growth and we needed breadth um, and while the guys were sort of generating for the customers that already had the team were already doing it I saw my job is to sort of lead that charge as it were to grow the business or the group so yeah I spent a lot of time doing that I got rejected a lot um, in, a, in a previous conversation we've had you were telling me about the sort of questions you might ask a business owner stroke Vendor mm. to sort of ascertain whether whether it was going to work or not. Yeah. What, what were those questions? Well, some of the ones that, that you sort of learn over time are they prepared to change the name of the business? Are they prepared to change um, the location of the business, the physical location? Are they prepared to change who they report to and the board structure? I think if you go through those three with pretty much any entrepreneur or founder, you'll get those are difficult questions yeah. pretty much for anybody. Um, and that doesn't mean, you know, there's a lot of businesses, don't they, that buy subsidiaries or whatever and leave them as standalone entities. But our model was about breadth and scale. And so that you needed to create that perception externally. So by leaving them isolated on their own didn't really work. Um, so, yeah, I'd learned that over time. But and then I still ended up buying some businesses that were uncomfortable doing those things. And generally, they didn't work out very well. So I should have sort of backed my judgment. Did everyone come into one place and you'd have a location in London? And London was the primary hub. And then the same was in the US. But they were difficult conversations, mm. really difficult. We ended up with offices in, you know, quite illogical places because the founders were there or the principals were there. That's where the offices were. But so, they're, yeah, they're pretty easy questions let alone whether they want to sell. And if you're, you're either buying businesses, aren't you, that are distressed and in trouble of being professionally put up for sale, mm -hmm. or you're trying to persuade somebody that isn't necessarily wanting to sell to join the group. So they're not easy conversations. Mm -hmm. I think as it gets bigger and, you know, if something's got a financial sponsor, it's easier. Yeah. But if you're talking to a founder or an entrepreneur, somebody that's created something from scratch, there's a lot more than money that goes into that decision. Yeah. It's a love, isn't it? The love yeah. of the business. Um, then into the integrations. The integrations really were about um, the products. This, well, the customer, the customer, and then broadening the sort of the product, the service across that customer. Yeah. 
So how did you how do you try and get that right? I think a lot of the time I was trying to when we used to buy the people, but it was about not losing any customers rather than growing it. For me, it was about trying to not lose anything through the transaction, and then predominantly trying to attract new customers from that new vertical into the enlarged group. It was less about sort of turning up the next day to. I don't know, a musician and saying, or an artist, look, great, you've joined this group and aren't we amazing? Because it's like, well, you know, you haven't helped me get where I am today. I've got no chemistry with you. So an element of it was more about trying to hold what we got and then attract new clients into the, into the proposition. But logically, as the group got bigger, you're predominantly trying to generate off-field or on-stage and off-stage income or on-screen and off-screen income. So the bigger we got from an off uh, stage or off field performance the bigger our commercial team was being able to reach out to pretty any, any brand consumer facing brand and have a credible conversation because you had talent that create emotional connections or have big social audiences so the bigger we got the more conversations we were having with brands and agencies and the more they wanted to talk to us so that in itself generated an income flow self-fulfilling Exactly. The bigger that we got, the easier it got. That doesn't mean keeping the teams was easy or the acquisitions, but from a client perspective, the larger we got. And the more skill we had around commercial deal points or intellectual property deal points, the more dialogues you were having with labels or TV networks or publishers. So, yeah, scale was a real mm. sort of trigger to be more commercially able to deliver for clients. I mean, slightly off the, off the PE track here, but dealing with these... Um stars really sports yeah. stars media stars uh and how difficult was that because i suppose if it's a fabulous relationship if it's uh, commercially going well and they're getting lots of opportunities yeah. but if they're on the on the way down say and they're not quite as interesting as they were mm. um what was the trick to managing talent or that type of yeah i mean i always say like People in the public eye don't need any more friends or family, so I always used to recognise that they were customers, and I suspect that's true for any business. Some customers are easier than others, or the chemistry can feel good at some point and not others, and I don't think that would be any any different. Most of them are uh, very reasonable to deal with, very ambitious, very resilient, all the things that got them there in the first place. Um, and you're right, you know, I think in any business relationship, success is easier to manage than failure or decline. So I wouldn't say they're any, any different. It's just the human reality of that and how quickly it could change, especially with the advent of social media, because being in the public eye is a pretty difficult space to be. Yeah. Go for um, it. How did you, so as you grew, it's quite a tailored service and they expect a lot of you as clients. Mm. So how did you continue to like offer that service at a high level as you scaled? Was that a case of increasing the head, head count through M&A? Was that more of a process? based approach it was more about infilling with skills for like accountants lawyers people that have come from agency backgrounds creative social media experts so you're actually often buying businesses that needed additional investment in one of those areas um, and the fact that you could then attract skilled specialists into those other areas meant that the service became more interesting so as we got bigger one of the takeaways that we probably should have done earlier is to look to bring in uh, skills and resources. So I don't know, if you're a writer, we hired somebody from a publishing background that had been an agent or a commissioner or somebody that had bought books in the past. And that's a real 
advantage having that skill internally, how to mm -hmm. edit copy as an example, or bringing somebody from A&R in from a music background or a label background. So, you know, you could add in, as, as you got bigger, you had more resources to bring in real specialists. Sure. Whereas obviously if you're a standalone business, you may not have the scale or reach to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess there's some mirrored elements there when you look at PE investment with them putting more expertise into your business to help it grow. Exactly. It's interesting. Yeah, PE would often, you know, I've been on plenty of away days where the PE house will bring in all the various specialist component parts and sometimes that connects and sometimes it doesn't, but it's the same philosophy. Mm -hmm. exactly. It must have been quite challenging for PE to some, in some respects, the whole business model. Because mm. um, I know a lot of it was, was a handshake and trust yeah. and faith, wasn't it, rather yeah. than... You know, sign the dotted line, and we're going to take twenty percent of your income. Yeah, it's all goodwill, really. Yeah, so it was really difficult. I did a lot of presentations. <laughs> um, How did you get them to trust you? Because I know, I know that's a quite a challenge for management teams and CEOs generally running PE backed businesses. Uh, when you go under PE ownership for the first time, they're obviously going to require an awful lot of um, uh, due diligence, uh, data to back everything up you know they're writing a check and a significant check for the business so yeah how did you get them to trust you trust the commercial relationships in the business when they were a little bit tenuous maybe sometimes i think you'd have to ask them more than me i saw a lot of people and we didn't get you know i don't know i think on the last round i must have done 70 or 80 presentations and we didn't get 70 or 80 offers so that presumably means <laughs> that some of them didn't trust me um I don't know how, I suppose track record over the years, the more years that went by, you have evidence, don't you? You have hard evidence of the growth of the business, both organic and through acquisition. Scale and breadth gives people more comfort. The headcount was about 500 people at that point. You know, if you look at WPP as an example, which is a scale business or CAA or some of the other, I mean, they're just, they're very big scale people enterprises. Yeah. Goldman Sachs, whoever you want to pick out, you know, some of the large accounts and legal businesses. Um, so I don't know how you do that I suppose people look at your track record and see what you've done but it's quite hard to answer because it's pretty tenure, subjective tenure of the of the talent I suppose yeah. in the business the churn of both the colleagues and the customers logical stuff like that because mm. even if you have a contract I mean sometimes having a contract I always think gives you an opportunity to mess up something you know in a people relationship mm. if you're relying on a contract on an interpersonal relationship with somebody that you're effectively asking you to guide your career and your commercial income. It's, there's probably something gone wrong. Mm. So um, you did Gresham and then he did an exit and went to Metric and then another two or three years and then you did a, a deal with uh, a private equity fund called Trilantic. And in that time, you started acquiring in the US. You sent some people to the US and you started doing some M&A in the US. And what, what's, what's the split in revenue now between... UK and US international. Yeah, I mean it's a few years I've left now over sure. two years ago, but it it was probably seventy UK, thirty US, and growing. I suspect it's probably more in the US now. I mean, the US market is just so much bigger. Mm. So we we, I think in the Sunday Times list we got up. I can't remember what the highest we were, but seventeen or eighteenth, or maybe thirtieth. I can't remember, but we were high up the international mm -hmm. growth league in relative terms to. You know, to our income growth. What did that mean to you then? And once you started going for U.S. international growth, were you spending half your time in yeah California? I was almost York doing like a month in L.A. and a month in England, which is I wouldn't advise anybody to do that. 
physically, emotionally, or even business-wise. I was trying to sort of oversee both, and there's lots of stories, aren't there, of that not working. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I've spent a lot of time. I'd always spent a lot of time in the US because we'd had, we'd had a, a US soccer business in Washington for years, so I'd always been going over there and trying to find an entry point. We bought quite a big music management company in LA, which was the Phil first outside of the soccer business, as they call it. Um, so yeah, then we had a physical, quite a large office in LA. The more I went, the more I realized I didn't really get the culture and the differences. Yeah, well, so that was gonna be my yeah. next question. Like how did you have to change your management approach or leadership style yeah. from UK to US? Yeah, definitely. And it was, there was a lot, there's a lot of Brits in entertainment in the US, so that helps. Um, a lot of people out there, and it's quite like London, it's an international place, but yeah, definitely. the. Little things, like I always remember in LA, we, from a European perspective, we got quite comfortable with having open plan offices. Um, so I'm going back, whereas in LA, that definitely still was not the case. Um, so there was quite a hierarchical structure around the size and the look of your office mm. in the business that I was so in. So you'd bring people in and, you know, they need to sit in a yeah, nice was, carriage. in the area that I was in. And I think that's true of a lot of the media offices I went into, which would be quite alien. Mm -hmm. so that was one thing. Um, even things like you know non-competes are illegal in California as an example. It's quite litigious. Uh, a lot of the culture I obviously hadn't grown up with and familiar with. So in that sense, which is all of these things are logical in every territory you go into. But I suppose because we speak the same language and we've grown up watching some of the some of the content, um, and it was okay. But yeah, I mean the reality of that is. 90% of the people that we employed were from the US and that was the right thing to do yeah. and it was trying to listen a lot more I mean, one of the things I take back from my career would be uh, listening a little bit more before I did stuff I think I was you know you want to feel like or I did anyway that I knew the answers and I think now I get a bit more distance I think I would have listened a little bit more mm -hmm. and really listened you know versus not but yeah we were successful and it grew and it's still there and it's growing quickly now but it's tough. You're up against some pretty big American entities there as well. So you know you're, you're the, the the minnow, which is exciting and gives you something to go at. How did you develop your your own team during this time? Did there was did people come and go, or did you did a lot of the your core team go through the whole? In the UK, you mean? Yeah, and the management team that led the business. Yeah, I mean, Mary, who runs it now, was part of, she came through. Most of the team stayed. I suppose that's coming back to where the trust came from. If you look at the senior management team, we didn't lose that many people over the years, which was kind of, I think, acquisitions and growth and actually trying to keep the people in the tent mm. was, was obviously two of my key roles. So I would delegate more and more of the operational and strategic direction of the UK and take more of an active role in the US is how it was evolving. Mm. Um, which Did you stick with the mantra of giving people a bigger job than perhaps they might have been ready for? I tried to. I think, you know, I've done, um, I don't know if you guys have done unconscious bias training around recruitment and things. Um, so I've done a lot of that. But I think I did. I think I always was looking for hidden gems or people that could grow. Um, I think that's probably true over my career, which is good and, and bad. That works sometimes and does not others. But yeah, I think I stick with believing that there was a lot of growth. I always used to say skills are taught, values are inherited. So for me, it was about trying to get to the basic motivation and drive of individuals. And if they lack skill, I always felt that you could train people. Pretty hard to change somebody's values. So if somebody wanted to work as an individual and be very entrepreneurial and isolated, then we probably weren't the right place. 
versus somebody that wanted to be part of a team was you know willing to learn and grow then if they had a skills gap then that wouldn't necessarily put me off hiring somebody mm. anything else value wise you'd look for no, I think I think there well, it's hard, isn't it? We did so much psychometric testing. I can't tell you how many different models because we were accruing a lot of people, and we would probably get half of them right retrospectively, and that's not good for the individual for us. So we did all sorts of. I ended up finding an individual based out of Australia, of all places, that did a lot of our psychometric testing for senior executives, both in the US and the UK, and he would go through his his psychometric model that he would do online and give us a report. Um, and that improved, that definitely made the interview process much more interesting because you were asking pretty pointed questions around, mm. you know, the output of that. Um, so, yeah, we tried really hard to, in a people business, I think recruitment's a real challenge, real mm. challenge. Yeah. And especially when you cross territories and regions. So, yeah, having something that was slightly more science-based as well as instinct. Time, you can't beat time, can you? I chair a a business now where the founder it's only a small but great great business very successful and you know he won't really hire anybody until he's gone out with them enough times to see all the size of their characters you know let's go out and get drunk if that's your thing or I don't know go and do meditation whatever it is and I think there's a lot of value in that but if you're a large organisation you're recruiting a lot of people you can't do you've that got a lot, yeah, I've got a lot and of you time. can't push that down the organisation so no yeah were a lot of people moving up internally as well yeah. as recruit from outside? Yeah, yeah. What was the progression plan there? How did you upskill them? Well, I think of the senior management team today, we probably recruited externally for CFO a few times, um, chair quite a few times, but the sort of divisional heads pretty much all came from either the acquisitions or the internal growth. Mm -hmm. I think it's quite hard to appoint somebody externally into into some of those positions where trust and client relationship is key, you probably have to have a journey internally before you can take those leadership positions. Sure. And then, um, so you made the, you transitioned from CEO to chair in 2020, is that right? No, that's what, <laughs> I, again, I, that's what I agreed to do. And we did a podcast um, on something else and a press release. And then I had an epiphany and thought, how can I go from being, running this business to, um, setting up effectively a new division and overseeing it so I sat with Trilantic and said look it's not for me which okay. I probably didn't handle as well as I could have done um, so yeah I went out on my own with no idea what came okay. next really yeah. it was in 2020 so I was going to say that would have been a very hard transition after 20 years at the yeah. least to sort of relinquish that I was scared I think I was really scared if I'm truthful about it like, one I had time it was Covid so everybody had time yeah. at that point to a degree uh, and I didn't really know what came next, but I've, you know, leaving Fulham was slightly spontaneous. Twenty years is a long time. W. H. Smith was nine years, reasonably long time. Mm -hmm. I've always had sort of a spontaneous. And my instinct just felt like I should jump and see what what came next. Um, and whatever that is now, two and a bit years later, I'm still figuring it out. But again, I'm sort of seem to be in a new um, sort of chair of three businesses now and non-exec director on another mm -hmm. and they're all small to medium-sized businesses where the skill for me now is learning to be a coach rather than an executive and that's tough that's, yeah. you know I'm giving my opinions which may or may not work so it's quite a different challenge mm. do you see quite a lot of your yourself and your experiences in Yes. what you're seeing your yeah. founders, CEOs go through now. Yeah, and there's a Magenta, who are Magenta Partners, another PE house are the sponsor in one of the businesses I'm in. It's so interesting to be an observer of that and see myself 
in those positions and realised, Christ, I probably could have been a bit smarter or cleverer when you've got a little bit of distance. But uh, yeah, it's really interesting. What 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 um, advice or what did you learn about those transaction points and doing a good transaction, doing leading a good exit from one PE firm to another? Because it's a very difficult moment, actually, isn't it, in the mm. the PE relationship? Because you know, if you're doing a secondary or a tertiary deal, you're you're you know you're a you're a seller and then a buyer, uh, and you've got to you've got to judge the price right, haven't you? So, yeah, I mean, I think you do it already. So there's Jameson. I think you guys work with in Liberty, uh -huh. who who I work with, and I wish I had done that earlier because it brings the element of emotional advice and support to the management team, both in terms of equity distribution, deal points just somebody to moan to that isn't internal because you do get deal fatigue on those things and you are a buyer and a seller mm. um, doing it without an advisor is it's and I did have the three deals I did two without an advisor and the last one with and definitely it was mm. much more value to have an advisor mm -hmm. than the first two it's tough though what about the first year or so with a new shareholder with a new investor it's usually the honeymoon period. I always say the first year is always the best so, you, so did you always hit your number did you always sort of deliver the yeah, first year yeah within a tolerance of? level yeah I always think the real because you're so you know you're DD and historically and generally the P houses the DD in the next 12 or 18 months pretty intently and if you haven't got contracted income in the business that we're in at that point you, you couldn't manufacture it yeah that quickly so I think the the, my experience of that would be it would be sort of year two to five that were probably the more challenging periods than it would be year one. You're all, it's, it's like any relationship, right? The energy's there and you're going to conquer the world and then all those things don't necessarily turn out to be the case. So yeah, the first 12 months was, in my experience, easier. It was then when you'd settled down and some things had gone well and some hasn't. It's how you deal with conflict or disagreements or things that don't go well. I think that's the acid test of things more yeah. than the, the initial phase because nothing's really a surprise. You spend so much time together talking about every eventuality. You need yeah. a bit of time to, you know, for things to, to unfold differently. What's, what, what would be your advice to me if I was in that situation then? If Doing I, a deal. You were my chair and, you know, I was um, perhaps having a difficult time in the second yeah. third year. I would, I mean, the, the, the takeaway I would have, I'd be more ambitious around my boards so you know when that when you're forming your new board post the transaction i wish i had been more ambitious by and what i mean by that is reaching for people that were probably active currently um so in relevant businesses so really being considered around the board complement and how you bring in non-execs that are one experience in private equity to relevant in terms of emotional intelligence so they're acting as a conduit so you also need somebody that's sitting in between the two and then for me but that's a reflection of me I, like I said I think I would be more considered I think I always felt like I needed to have the answer which some of us always do and so I think I would take longer to make decisions probably they would be my two bits of advice but that helps because if you've got a and I've seen now by doing these things the difference between a really functional board with two or three non-execs that are relevant and in it for the right reasons is transformational because it just gives you somewhere to go because there can be conflicts can't there there can be conflicts of interest between the PE house and you as the management team so having two or three individuals around you that have been there done it can act with emotional intelligence is huge yeah
and you do get that window of opportunity with PE House and you if you're if you're going again mm. to think about the complement of that board. And I probably didn't think about that enough. Probably would be my advice. Would you do it again if the opportunity arose to be a PE back CEO? Yeah, it's probably the truth. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, is I don't, yeah I liked PE to be honest. There was no I always said like when I walked in the room you can write the check right. Yeah. So everybody that you met was taking you seriously so yeah I wouldn't I, I'm a big fan of private equity I think it's tough and it's a very financial mm -hmm. can be short term versus long term which I think you asked me answer. but yeah no I'm I'm a big fan of it yeah I mean so you've all got the same goal really don't you all there to make the business a better business yeah so. yeah and the only way you do that is yeah obviously the metric is financial isn't it but if you don't improve the business in some way shape or form then there's going but yeah I'm I'm a big fan of it I think I think Andy, if you take Andy Marsh at the outset, he was incredibly gifted, still is, he's still really active. He was a great combination of finance and emotional intelligence and a lot of instinct because buying a relatively small entity. So yeah, no, I, I would, nothing from me in my experience of PE put me off PE mm -hmm. at all. Tell us about your businesses you're in now then. So what, what have you got? So I've got uh, three. I've got an events management business, uh, a cricket agency, which is my sports and heritage. Um, doing the same thing, trying to... Yeah, well, they only do cricket, actually. Short form cricket has exploded all over yeah. the world and is really growing. Um, so I oversee that. And I've got a fine fintech business that targets super yachts, television and music. So that's the one that's PE-backed, which I enjoy. That's a learning experience because I don't know too much about software or coding. And then I so share... So it's fintech in it, it's software and it's... Financial, it's financial. It's payments, is it? <clears throat> it's payments and account management. Yeah, accountancy, basically. Yeah. It's the bit before zero, effectively, like prepaid cards and how you take those transactions, expenses, receipts, payments back into whatever your proprietary software is. Yeah, got it. Right. In, a, in a sexy space of super yachting and they're just done an acquisition, actually, uh, this week, which was really interesting to see. So again, a PE house, see the management team go through it, deal mm -hmm. points on both sides. Quite nice to observe one rather than be in one. Um, and then I chair a charity, Riding for the Disabled, which right. a regional one based in Teddington, um, which won Charity of the Year last year for Channel 4, which is which is interesting. Again, that's a whole yeah. the charity commission and reporting standards and corporate governance, everybody's a volunteer. So that's definitely challenged me in a different way. Brilliant, brilliant charity there. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. You've got any There's more questions, Richard? Not from me, no. Thank you, Neil. That was fantastic. Thanks, gents. Cheers, Neil.